All right, what is up, Crypt Nation? Welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 Podcast. And today's show is sponsored by Gods Unchained, the digital card game that offers true ownership to players. So, so gamers, listen up here. Uh, cards are minted on Ethereum, uh, meaning users can trade, sell, and program their assets however they like. And actually, a new expansion set just got released with limited edition cards and ERC-20 chests available for sale. And if you miss out, you can hunt down these or other previously sold out chests on third-party sites like Uniswap. Uh, this game is the real deal, guys. It's helmed by uh, experienced TCG legend Chris Clay uh, of Magic the Gathering. Uh, so, guys... It is fun, it is engaging, it is competitive, and it has more NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, right, than any other Ethereum game on the market. So you could support the channel, and you could try the game out for free, just click the link in the show notes. But before we dive in to our awesome, awesome guest and conversation today, I want to remind you guys of two things. And the first one is that if you go to Crypto101Insider.com, you can join our private community. Here's where we have our model portfolio and all of our top picks. We also have uh, Crypto 101 University. Uh, where we have hours and hours and hours of written and video content that explains blockchain and explains cryptocurrency in a very bite-sized and easy-to-understand way. Uh, and we have a weekly newsletter that goes out and quarterly state of crypto addresses that go out. There is just a ton of value packed into this every which way. So I want you guys first uh, to go to Crypto101Insider.com today uh, if you haven't already. I also want to remind you guys that Pizza Mind and I recently just finished a book. Uh, it took 11 months of our lives to write, and we're calling it Crypto Revolution, Your Guide to the Future of Money. We walk you through this fascinating world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and it's part history book, it's part instructional guide, and it's going to really show you guys why cryptocurrencies are globally disruptive and how they're going to actually change in real life and in real terms the way that we buy and sell and even live. We include a bunch of how-tos on getting started with your first exchanges. Uh, we give you tips on you know how to safely buy and sell and store cryptocurrencies, as well as how do we evaluate potentially good cryptocurrencies. And the best part of the book is that we're giving it away for free. All you have to do is pay for shipping and handling. So go to CryptoRevolution.com and pick up your copy today. All right, everybody, all of you good, wonderful citizens of Crypt Nation, we are back with another intense episode here of Crypto 101 Podcast. Pete, how are you doing, brother? You excited? I am super excited. This is a hot, scorching summer here in California. Things are on fire everywhere. Crypto's on fire. But there's one project that's heating up the space, maybe more than everything else, with I think the biggest news of the year with all the developments, and I'm not talking about sushi or any other food, I'm talking about Cardano. After five years, they've launched their mainnet. Everyone is super excited for this new era, and we are graced with the presence today of Mr. Charles Hoskinson. Welcome to the Crypto 101 podcast. Well, first, a correction. We launched our mainnet back in September of 2017. Uh, we did the Shelly update uh, in uh, in July, which is the one everybody was waiting for because we went from a static and federated system to uh, 
dynamic and decentralized system. Whether that makes you a cryptocurrency or not, I guess we're going to have to ask the Ripple guys. But uh, certainly Ooh. a major, major milestone in, uh, in our project's history. Absolutely. I love it. We we apologize for the uh, the misnomer there on the the uh, the introduction here. Well, but well you always gonna... gotta get, gotta be spitting fire right out the gate. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> we would expect nothing less from you, Charles. So, because there's a lot of people that are just listening, maybe this is their very first crypto podcast they've ever heard because their friend said, "Oh my God, you gotta send this to them." Charles Hoskinson's on. Give us a background on who you are what you do and what you were doing even before you got into crypto. How did you get to where you are today? Sure. I, uh, I started wanting to be a mathematician and then somewhere along the way, I decided being an entrepreneur was a bit more interesting and uh, diverse than that uh, dreary career sitting in a basement yelling at a blackboard saying, why doesn't this work? So now I get to sit in the basement drinking whiskey, staring at a blackboard saying, why, why can't I make money? See, it's, it's a very big change, right? <laughs> but anyway, levity aside, I became an entrepreneur back in 2013. And uh, basically, uh, what I was really interested in was uh, using emerging technology to give economic identity to those who don't have it. Uh, so this concept of economic identity is this idea that when you want a bank account, you can open a bank account. When you want an insurance policy, you can get an insurance policy. Uh, you have documentation. So for example, you can get loans. You have a credit score. People know who you are. They know if you're a good person, a bad person. They can run a background check on you. You can get employment. Billions of people live in a world where they have that. But the problem is that billions of people live in a world where they don't have that, or even when they have it, it's unstable. So all the wealth you accumulate can be lost when monsoon season comes or a war breaks out or something like that. So I saw cryptocurrencies and I said, wow, this whole cryptocurrency blockchain thing, it's really interesting, not because, well, fuck the government and burn everything down. No, it's interesting because it's the first time in human history where we have a new way of giving economic identity to people who don't have it and people already have it where everybody's equal and it's free and fair. So Jeff Bezos has the same system that the poor person in Senegal has. They're basically the same in that respect. So I said, wow, that's really cool. I have to be part of this, but I had no clue how to be part of it. So, uh, you know, I, I remember what an old professor of mine used to tell me, he says, those who cannot do teach. So, so that's what I'm going to do. I'll create some educational content. I'll uh, create some courses and then, you know, maybe that'll get me into the space. So I released a class back in 2013 on Udemy called Bitcoin or how I learned to stop worrying and love crypto. And I ended up, ended up getting more than 80,000 students for that course. Wow. And I got thousands of emails and I met everybody. I met Roger Verne, Andreas Antonopoulos and all the big people in the space before they were big. And that really bootstrapped me into cryptocurrency. And then eventually I started a series of companies, but the, the one that I run, have run for now more than five years is Input Output. And what makes our organization special is we're really a research and engineering firm. And we have some of the best scientists and engineers in the world working for us. We have over 250 people from 40 different countries. We have four research labs. We've written more than 75 academic papers. A lot have gone through peer review at major venues and over a million lines of code uh, in really difficult languages like Haskell and so forth. And we use a lot of formal methods and we build cryptocurrencies and we build blockchain systems. And our goal is to try to find a way to deploy these in places where people don't have economic identity and uh, they can get it. So we've been to Mongolia, to the country of Georgia. We have an office in Ethiopia and we do all kinds of cool projects there. Uh, and uh, over the last five years, we've been really working on Cardano. It's one of our flagship products in that respect. And we've gotten it from kind of an academic novelty to 
a rapidly maturing and turning on system that has just recently become one of the most decentralized cryptocurrencies around. And very soon it's gonna be a major competitor in the smart contract space for DeFi and for dApps in the developed world. And a really an enabler of economic identity within the developing world. And that'll be a great consumption source for that DeFi and dApp revolution that's coming. Wow, very powerful stuff. And, and there's a lot that we can unpack, but I wanna stick on uh, economic identity and, and that concept of, of identity while we're here before we move on. Um, I was actually having an interesting conversation with my folks and my girlfriend the other day, trying to explain to them this new paradigm of uh, cryptocurrency and decentralized identity. And, and I was trying to explain to them that, and, and I'm asking for your help here because I, I was grasping and I couldn't really drive the point home, but the idea that right now we use Facebook and Google to authenticate our identity to several right. different platforms. But in the future, we're using um, you know, a decentralized identity. Can you kind of talk through how that works and sure, maybe specifically sure. how Cardano is solving problems like that? Yeah, you know, the, the reality is that uh, we live in a world where we have plenty and we have access to lots of things. The problem is that there are a lot of custodians and middlemen in this particular world, and we don't seem to mind them too much because they don't seem to get in the way too much here in the United States. But when you look to Ethiopia or Rwanda, either they're non-existent or they really do get in the way. So for example, when you go to get a car loan, most people can get a reasonable interest rate. When you go to get a loan in let's say Senegal or Ghana or Ethiopia, if you can get one, you up to 50%, 60%, 70% interest rates. The average is somewhere between 15 to 35% for microfinance transactions. And when you move money around, super cheap for us to do that. And super easy for us to do that. PayPal or whatever, remittances abroad, 8% to 15% gets absorbed in the transaction. Take up to two weeks for the money, sometimes a month for the money to arrive. Depends on the country wow. and the location. So that's just one example. But then you look at identity and governance and you very rightly say, well, hang on, we have all these identity providers like Equifax and background check people. And yeah, Google and Facebook certainly have a lot to say about your digital identity these days and they own it. You don't own your own identity. You, they actually own your data. They know more about you than probably the CIA does at this point. Uh, and yeah. so probably selling to them. Uh, so, uh, so you have these custodians that basically get to decide uh, your interface. And as we've seen with people being deplatformed, most recently when Joe Rogan moved from YouTube, for example, to Spotify, some he said all the episodes would be available. Then suddenly a few episodes are missing. Suddenly, some people get kicked off YouTube. Suddenly, some people don't get to play in Twitter. It's become increasingly clear that uh, more and more consolidated organizations are having control over who you are, how you are perceived as a person, what you're allowed to consume, what you're not allowed to consume, who you're allowed to do business with, who you're not allowed to do business with. So uh, conversely, when you look at the cryptocurrency space and we, we go to the other side of the aisle, that's basically getting rid of all the middlemen. And it's pushing power to the edges it means you are your own bank. You are your own identity provider. You own your own property. You actually control those records. You are controlling the access to it. And it can't be taken from you. You can't be deplatformed. You can't be shut out. We like this in the developed world. We say, yeah, okay, control's great. In the developing world, it's an absolute necessity to quality of life because they live in environments where at any given time the government can change or some catastrophic event can break out like ISIS takes over. And then suddenly all that progress, all that wealth, all that determination, whether you're a good person or a bad person, it completely changes on you. In many cases, you have to flee your country. 
millions and millions of people every year become what are called diaspora. They get pushed out of their own country. They become refugees. We run into them all the time when we uh, run around Africa and the Middle East and other places. And so our technology is ubiquitously useful on both sides of the aisle. Uh, So Cardano was kind of built from the ground up. We term it the first true third generation cryptocurrency. So we get all the lessons of Bitcoin. We get all the lessons of Ethereum, but we really design it to act at scale. So eventually the system can evolve to have billions of users. And whether that is a concern of governance and e-voting or a concern of identity and being in charge of your own identity, or is that a concern of something related to value that can be properties, securities, it could be commodities or their digital representations or uh, underlying utility tokens. It doesn't really matter. Do all those things for everybody, regardless of where they happen to be born and whether they won the geographic or genetic lottery, doesn't matter that. And they basically uh, get the same system that Jeff Bezos gets and Bill Gates gets and so forth. That's a pretty magical thing. Now, you have to have a lot of miracles to get there. So we have a lot of innovations in open source software, a lot of technological miracles to get there, a lot of scientific miracles to get there. Like, for example, how do you know the protocols actually work? There's a lot of science behind them. So how do you know the science is right? So we followed the peer review process and submitted a lot of the foundational papers to major academic conferences, not in the cryptocurrency community, but in the cryptography community. So the academic domain that's been around a lot longer (laughs) since our industry. And the fact that they got accepted, they achieved peer review means that there's some merit behind the things that we say. And the ultimate test is building and deploying them, which we did. And now with the turning on of Shelley, we've gone from static and federated system to a completely decentralized system with over 1,200 stake pools, making us more than 100 times more decentralized than Bitcoin, which is a pretty amazing thing. And uh, they're all competing with each other. They're advertising. Some of them are creating alliances. It's really cool to watch the game theory kind of roll its way out. And that's just kind of the first step. Next step is smart contracts. The next step after that's governance. And then we're going to add a lot of the scalability components on the tail that allows the system to achieve uh, millions of users. That's really brilliant. And one of the coolest things uh, from where Bryce and I get to sit is talking to folks like yourself that are trying to solve these problems that humanity has. And we've heard this from some of the smartest people in the world that I've ever met. And whether you know it or not, you guys are actually working together to solve this problem, even if it's under a different flag. And speaking of different flags, uh, a lot of people might not know that, that are maybe newer to crypto. Charles, that you were one of the main heads responsible for Ethereum becoming as adopted as it is. You were the guy uh, you know, running the biz dev over there. So with such a vastly different landscape now compared to when Ethereum first started, I mean, when Ethereum first started, it was like a man walks on the moon when smart contracts were introduced. But now there's maybe even hundreds of competitors trying to be the next scaling solution or the next smart contract platform that does, you know, 0.1% of something different. You know, what's your approach to replicate that success and make Cardano the platform of choice that everyone in the world can use? Yeah, that's why I term these things generations. You know, when Bitcoin came out, there were a lot of imitators to Bitcoin. And then Ethereum came out, it was a completely new generation. It was a fundamentally different way of looking at what a cryptocurrency happens to be. You know, we said, hey, Bitcoin's great, but it's blind, deaf, and dumb. (laughs) You can't talk to other systems. You you just have to deal with whatever the system gives you. And uh, it's not particularly smart system. You know, it's not denigrating Bitcoin. It was a revolution for its time, but it was only designed to do one thing. You don't go yell at a shovel because it's not an axe. You say, well, go build an axe. The problem is that you can't predict what type of tools people are going to need for a decentralized society. 
So while you can be very clever and give people, you know, an, an axe and a shovel and a pickaxe, what happens when they need something else? What happens when they need something really sophisticated, like a tractor? Well, who's going to go build that? And if it's just used by one person, then even if it's necessary for them, they're not going to get it because the protocol can't accommodate it and they're too small of a constituency. So the idea was almost like when JavaScript came to the web browser and we said, hey, let's add smart contracts and then you can build your own tools. That means you can build your own application. The problem is threefold. One, it's a problem of scale. So these systems are replicated by design. What that means is that they're only as good as their weakest link. So if one computer can't do it, then you can never scale beyond that. Uh, so that's why Ethereum has these high gas fees. It's why Bitcoin has historically been bottlenecks, why you have a lot of throttling inside the system. It was never designed to get resources as people gain the system, people join the system. Uh, the second problem is one of interoperability. As I mentioned, Bitcoin is blind, deaf, and dumb. Well, Ethereum, to a certain extent, is still a, its own system, and it makes no special provisions to talk to other systems. You can do that with smart contracts, but it's a very expensive proposition. If you look at BTC Relay and these other projects historically have existed, uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to say the only way you can talk to another system is every time you do it, it costs you $10 or $15. That just doesn't make sense. And then third, there's a sustainability issue. And this is really the golden rule, the the who pays and who decides. And the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules. So the problem is that, uh, you know, after you do an ICO or some fundraising event, you have some capital up front to go do something. But what happens year five, year 10, year 15, year 20? Just recently, uh, Brave was complaining that Google seems to be having an outsized influence on web standards and pushing standards in a way that ensures that advertisements can be pushed to people with or without their consent. A standard is being built that way. That's really crazy. Why? Because Google's a trillion-dollar company. And as a consequence, they can have a very big voice. So similarly, the question is, how will the system pay for itself? Not just its security, but its development. So when you look at these three things, you say, It's not about better smart contracts and being a better blockchain. Those are iterative evolutionary things you can do. The revolutionary thing, the the zero to one, the big thing is the introduction of these new characteristics. And so what we did is we started from first principles back in 2015. And we said, what do these protocols need to look like? So how do we do things like provably secure proof of stake and build it in a very modular way so that over time it can evolve and be useful 50 years down the road? How do we build the system so it really is easy to put layer two solutions on that allow you to have interoperability bridges, whether they be oracles or cross-chain communication and these types of things? How do we build the system in a way that the cost of accessing and using the system either stays the same or it decreases over time as you get more users inside the system? These were design goals that existed there. And furthermore, how do we put a governance layer on top of the system to actually pay for stuff? So that in a decentralized way, you're also building the world's largest VC, and that can go and invest in core technology and projects that bring adoption to the system and allow the system to propagate without unsustainable models like a perpetual ICO model or this you know, weird DeFi model that people are uh, proposing. So these were all just kind of aspirations. And we wrote 75 papers and we spent a huge amount of time thinking it through. And now we're executing the first generation of that roadmap. And then we'll next year try to get the second generation that roadmap started uh, and just keep going along. Hopefully I'll be working on this project for uh, until I got a big bushy white beard and 
you know, 40, 50 years from now, I can retire, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Now, in, you know, in particular competitive areas, there were a lot of little things that we had to think about. Like, for example, the smart contract model, Bitcoin was fundamentally right in a certain respect. They have something called the UTXO model, and Ethereum has kind of this global accounts model. Well, UTXO is really nice because it's pass-fail, and it's kind of a local concern. You only pay attention to the things that exist in your wallet. Whereas at accounts, it's like a global concern. Everybody has to know each other's business. And that's not really good when you talk about a distributed system. So what we did is we started with the Bitcoin model and we extended it, literally. We call it the extended UTXO model. And then we allow smart contracts to sit on top there. And it makes it a lot easier to compute gas costs. It makes it a lot easier to shard the system. And it makes it a lot easier to prove correctness for transactions and interdependencies, the transitive interdependencies in the graph. But we didn't just assume that. What we did is we hired some of the best programming language people around. People have been writing programming languages for 35 years, like Phil Wadler, who created Haskell, for example, and others. And we built this beautiful team. And we said, just go think about smart contracts for a few years and come back to us after you guys you know, kind of have a clue. So they wrote all these papers. They did all this work. We formalized the uh, EVM with a firm called Runtime Verification. And along the way, we learned a lot about that entire model from gas economics to the verification of smart contracts. And what we discovered is that you have to have a holistic model. You can't just write a language and say, oh, our language is better than your language or our accounting model is better than your accounting model because applications, they don't work that way. Uh, instead, applications are ecosystems. So when you have your cell phone app, your cell phone app talks to a server and probably consumes lots of different services along the way. So when you look at a blockchain or a programming ledger, you'd say, well, hang on a second here. This, this ledger is probably just one service for a collection of services my application has. So what goes on chain is just as important as what goes off chain as we've seen in practice with a lot of these applications. And so what we did with Plutus, the primary smart contract languages, is kind of that glue that allows you to define your on-chain logic and your off-chain logic and balance these things in just a way so you can prove that the entire application works for you and you can still retain the other things that are outside of the ecosystem. And you can write those in the languages you like, like JavaScript or Java and so forth. The other side of it is this concept that the things that go on-chain, those are probably going to be templated repeated over and over again. They're probably going to be concise, less than 500 to 1,000 lines of code. Like just recently, we're proposing a treasury model, for example, with Ethereum Classic. When we wrote all the Solidity code for that complex treasury system, it was only 700 lines of code. So you're not talking about a lot of code that goes on chain. So it's not about verbosity. It's about correctness, as we've seen with a lot of DeFi failures and application failures for the last few years with Ethereum. So what's the best way of ensuring correctness? Simplicity. So we wrote what are called DSLs, simple languages. And the first of which that's hitting market is something called Marlowe that we've been building with financial mathematicians and domain experts like Simon Thompson at University of Kent. And this is specifically for paint by numbers. You can literally have a, a blocks and connect them together like Lego bricks uh, to basically build a financial contract. And once you're done with it, you can click a button to verify that it does what you think it does using very formal complex techniques under the hood, like SAT solvers. But basically they give you a certainty that what you're written does what you think it does and it doesn't have a backdoor in it or you know some sort of DAO hack flaw or something like that. 
And then once you have those, you can build more DSLs along the way, DSLs for supply chain, DSLs for healthcare management, DSLs for AI. In fact, we're even in conversations about that, DSLs for legal contracts and so forth. So the stuff that goes on chain, that should be simple and correct. And you're going to reuse that a lot and templates will naturally emerge over time. And you need a glue code to allow you to talk to things off chain. And we said, why don't we use one of the best languages around for that, Haskell and Plutus. And with 35 years of legacy and testing tools, instead of inventing a new programming language completely out of thin air and hoping to God that uh, it works well. And so- Like what uh, Ethereum did with Solidity. Yeah. And they based it on JavaScript, but uh, you know, only worse- and uh, they've had to pay a lot of, uh, of really bad price uh, for that. But they've gotten it to a point where that's at least a viable ecosystem, but it's been very challenging. And the problem is when mistakes are made, it's not the developers who pay them, it's the consumers of the applications who are often retail investors. And that's a really irresponsible thing to do in some cases. Right. That was a very, very thorough explanation. There's one, one aspect of that that I kind of wanted to hit on because it's extremely relevant to today is the the fees, right? So everybody is saying, you know, Ethereum gas fees are totally out of whack. They're so high, all that kind of stuff. And it's because the increase in demand and all these different DeFi applications pinging each other, and there's a limited amount of block space, right? A limited amount of transactions that can get processed every second or every 15 seconds. How does Cardano kind of, like you mentioned, you're kind of working to ensure that as applications and usage increases, fees don't also just get crazily out of hand. Right. So so you talk a little bit about the fee structure and how that's all going to work. Yeah, the resource model is a really interesting one because it's not just about what is the cost of running things. It's also about what are you running? So the reason why you have a balance between off-chain and on-chain is that as you're architecting an application, you have options in that architecture about how much do you want the blockchain to take care of and how much do you want other infrastructure to take care of. So if you have a dynamic way of moving that on each side, it allows you to really start cost optimizing your applications. The other side of it is when you're talking about DSLs, DSLs are often Turing incomplete, which means they're deterministic usually. And what does that mean? It means you get exact costings of what it requires to run them ahead of time. And in many cases, if they're reused over and over again, those templates can be subsidized at a much lower cost, meaning they become pre-started transactions in the system and you can just have fixed costs for them as opposed to treating everything equally. So we've done this, for example, with our asset issuing model. Instead of having something like ERC-20, where tokens are basically smart contracts, we said, why don't we just treat every token issued on our system like we treat ADA, the underlying unit of account. So they have the same transaction model and so forth. It's pretty, pretty That's obvious. Super cool. Think think about doing that. It's really hard to figure that out in practice. And we did. And we actually wrote a formal specification for it and so forth. It also opens up the possibility of vanity addresses. So when you issue a, you know, a coin, it can have Bryce address. So Bryce coin and then the address, these types of things. And it'll help like uh, exchanges and other people because they can create vanity addresses for their, uh, for their exchanges. So you send a Binance's address. And we even have an identity layer called Prism where you can authenticate them and so forth. So there's a lot of really cool things that these design considerations open up. So kind of step one in answering that question is saying, balance the off-chain and on-chain. And the things on-chain make those as simple and concise as possible and make them easy to run in layer two solutions. So the beautiful thing about extended UTXO is we designed that hand in glove with a state channel solution we call Hydra. And so what that means is that you can go on and off chain, you can go into the layer two, out of the layer two, 
and you have a very predictable user experience and very predictable security as you do that. But when you go to this layer two solution, it's a thousand times faster and it scales with the amount of heads and each head can map to a stake pool. So as our system gets more decentralized, you have more Hydra heads and the system can run at millions of TPS if you wanted to. What does that do for your operational cost? It goes way down, right? The other thing is that because you're close to formal methods, you have significantly better tools to kind of pre-understand what your resource costs are for the things that you do. So again, it allows the system to self-optimize. And proof of stake is really nice because there are all kinds of ways that you can shard the state space where and when that becomes necessary. So kind of stage one is just create that balance, use these templates and DSL-driven approach and get more predictable costings, use an accounting model that's easy to shard and easy to work with layer two. And that'll get you for hundreds of thousands to millions of users. And then build the system in a way that when you want to go from millions to billions, it's very straightforward on how to shard that system and run a much more exotic state space. The problem with Ethereum 2 is that they decided to go straight to the sharding solution. And the problem with sharding is it adds exponential complexity to everything. And so even small things like your clock not being right, the whole system collapses. And just you also lose a lot of security along the way. And then you have availability problems and you have to invent new data structures like coded Merkle trees and all this stuff. And I, I think it's more than they uh, anticipated that they wanted. So I, I think you can get a lot of mileage out of this model for three to five years, giving you plenty of time in the luxury of doing sharding correctly and not really trading much security or availability, but being able to gain true scale. And by the way, you have this beautiful set of actors who can kind of act as super nodes to distribute computation and other things. The other thing is there's this um, secondary technology that's growing at an exponential rate, and that, that's ZK-SNARKs. ZK and that's not clear where that's going, but there's a lot of magic there. And it's in a broader class of things called verified computation or outsourceable computation. So the, the idea is that, let's say, you don't trust Aaron, sorry, Aaron, but, uh, but, but Aaron's got a lot of computational power. So what you do is you say, all right, you do everything I want you to do, computationally speaking, but you're gonna give me a proof that you did it correctly. So you don't have to redo his computation, but you're able to verify from the proof that the things that he did for you are correct, and then you pay Aaron. When you're in that kind of a market, you don't need a replicated virtual machine to do your execution then. You just need that to check your proofs which are consistent and much, 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 much smaller orders of magnitude, like log space versus where you're going. So what does that mean? It means that everybody in the system can be a company. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, 
we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Computational engine. You go from one to many, as long as those proof are violent. And there's already been enormous progress. It started with Microsoft with projects like Pinocchio and Geppetto. And now we've just seen so many cool things with ZK rollups and stuff from Starkware and things we've done with Sonic and the Halo project, for example, with uh, Electric Coin Company. And that's going to evolve exponentially in the next three to five years. And so it's not even clear if you even need to shard after that comes in, because you'll have state channel layer two solutions. You'll be able to achieve at least a thousand transactions per second on the base ledger, and that's probably enough. And then the character of those transactions may be aggregations instead of universal transactions. So they're just roll-ups of things that are happening outside of the system, but the trust model is the same. So why would you then need to break the state space uh, and, and go down that road? It seems like much complexity for not necessarily any value. So we think a lot about this. And the point is the people who think about this, they're domain experts who have spent decades in these fields. Like our zero knowledge guys, Markov Kohlweiss, we poached them from Microsoft Research. And he worked on Project Everest where he was working on the verifying all the web crypto. And uh, he's a zero knowledge expert. This is what he does for a living. He's been doing this for a long time. Uh, Agalos has been around since the 1990s. He co-authored papers with David Chom. You know, he's, uh, he's been here for a long time. And so he's written probably 200 papers at this point on different topics with different collaborators. So we have tons of beautiful research there. And it's very iterative in a certain respect. So for example, when we create a proof of stake, Ethereum is always looking for the holy grail. They say Casper until it's not. Next Casper until it's not. And they keep going and then it falls apart. What we've done is we said, okay, what is a blockchain? Simple question. And what is a secure blockchain? What security properties should it have for both proof of work and proof of stake, just in general? And we wrote that as the GKL15, which is the most cited, over 800 citations, and it is the bedrock upon which many academics from Algorand to others view what is a secure ledger. And they say, okay, we're going to prove that the GKL model is successful. Great. Then we said, okay, can you do secure proof of stake in any operating model, even unrealistic models, just to see if it's even theoretically possible or can we have an impossibility result? Because you go talk to Blockstream and Adam Back and these other guys and they say, it's perpetual motion. It doesn't even work under any circumstances. We said, maybe they're right. So let's go see if we can either prove it doesn't work and write an impossibility theorem or show it does work. And then it's a question of, are we okay with the trade-offs or are they too significant and we can't build a cryptocurrency from this? So we wrote Ouroboros Classic in 2016 and we showed proof of stake is as secure as proof of work, but in a synchronous operating model, which is not real life. So then we said, uh, how do we make that better? How do we get adaptive security? How do we prove it in the GUC model? How do we do all these things? And that's what Ouroboros Preos and Ouroboros Genesis and Ouroboros Kronos, but these were all papers. 
self-contained pieces of work that were cumulative. We kept building on one after another, and each and every one of them addressed something like the clock or the synchronization model or a different operating model that's necessary for a cryptocurrency to be successful. And all along the way, we submitted them to major academic conferences, which is the computer science version of journals. So we had crypto and Eurocrypt and CCS. These are major conferences that only accept 10 to 15% of papers that are submitted. And papers submitted by people out of Harvard and MIT and other places. They're not easy to get into these conferences. And all along the way, we kept building and building and building and building. That was the model we followed. And it was the same for the programming language side. It's the same for how we designed the ledger rules with formal systems and, and, and uh, along the way. So this gives us a domain mastery that you need to have when you need to adapt and evolve and change things, especially quickly, because you know what you can't do, what you can do, what trade-offs you can accept. When you don't do things in a structured way, you may end up with a design, but you have no clue when you change that design, what it's actually going to do for the entire system, which is why F2 keeps having delays because they have so much complexity to manage and there's, and there's really no strong foundation. So every time they try to tinker with something, it kind of falls on itself and they have to go back to it and kind of change a bunch of things. Eventually they get to a stable design and they're like, nobody touch it. We hope it works. It's okay. We, we think we're on solid footing now. And then like, then six months later, it falls over again. So we feel very confident with the approach we've shown. And also the, the last point, I know I've been going on for a while here, is the decentralized brain that you create from this process. You see, the reality is that because we took the time to write these papers, which are now cited hundreds of times, the entire academic community knows of them and in many cases are doing derivative work that we're not paying for and we have nothing to do, but they're doing it. A great example would be Pramod Viswanas uh, and his team at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign and MIT and Stanford and CMU, they wrote something called Nakamoto Proof of Stake. So they started with our Ouroboros design and they improved it in their own way and wrote a paper about that that's like 60 pages long. We didn't commission that paper. We had nothing to do with it, but now it's a, it's a downstream improvement that we potentially can learn from. So we've, in essence, activated the entire academic community all across the globe to read our work, consider our work, refine our work, and then we can take the best of the best and pull it back into the protocol. What does that mean? It means that you don't have a cult of personality behind a single brilliant founder or team or company. You, in essence, have created an innovation machine that generation by generation is going to keep producing output because they're getting into conferences, which is how you get tenure and it's how you rise in the academic food chain. And all of that contribution comes into our ecosystem because we took the time to engage people. So you know you're building on granite. You know the things you're doing are reasonable and at least have been double-checked. So you have some independent thought there. But then most importantly, you've actually built a decentralized brain that can help you rise to the challenges that uh, a protocol with billions of users is going to encumber. I love it. And you, you were talking about staking for a little bit there. And I want to dive into that because it's something that I think a lot of our listeners are actively doing. They're actively staking, whether it's Tezos or Cardano um, or whatever they're, they're doing. Um, but sometimes people don't really know what they're doing. They're just like, oh, I just know I get a yield on it. And that, that like makes me happy. Um, so could you walk us through what staking really means and why it's so crucial and maybe how uh, Cardano staking differs from some of the other platforms? Yeah. So staking is synthetic mining. So in, regardless of whether you're Bitcoin or you're or Cardano or EOS or Tezos or any other cryptocurrency, 
you have this concept of a resource and that resource is finite and that resource determines who gets to be in charge. And then that that's kind of stage one. It's a synthetic resource. So you say, okay, let's say there's a thousand tokens. If I have a hundred of them, I have a hundred of that resource. So roughly 10% of the time I should be able to be allowed, have the right to make a block. So in practice, you end up having delegation, a lot of these schemes, because making that block, running the network is a very technical thing. And most users don't have those capabilities. So if you have that virtual resource, you can donate that virtual resource or delegate. I had a lot of GPU miners. I had AMD 50A50s and Crossfire, four of them. And I had 1.2, I think, giga hashes of mining power. I thought I was the big kid on the block. And I used the slush mining pool. So I downloaded some special software. I just left my computer on and like magic, every day I'd show up and I'd have a few Bitcoin. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. Back then, Bitcoin was pretty cheap. It was like four bucks. Actually, it was even cheaper than that. So I was like, okay, all right. You know, I almost could pay for power with my mining. And I ended up uh, trading a lot of those Bitcoin in for uh, an Xbox 360 on BitMax. Bitmit. (laughs) Damn. But, uh, but anyway, that's basically what mining is about. It's like you have a virtual resource or an actual resource, and then the amount you possess gives you uh, basically a chance to advance the state of the network. And you can either delegate that chance to a third party, as I did with a mining pool, or as many people do in proof of stake systems, to stake pools. And what makes Ouroboros really special is it's the maximally flexible system. So systems like DPoS, they just pre-pick a quorum and you kind of vote on who's in charge. The amount of votes you have are proportional to the amount of stake you have, and then they're trusted to go run the system, but it's very inflexible. Systems like Ouroboros are elastic, so they can have 100 stake pools, 1,000 stake pools, 10,000 stake pools. And we designed the system that as the price of ADA goes up, it's very easy to, to modify the economic parameters in the system so that you get more and more and more and more of these stake pools. So your average stake pool is always of a reasonable size and you don't have this massive consolidation of power into one particular group. And that's advantageous on two dimensions. One is a decentralization dimension. So you get more decentralized over time. The system gets more expensive, which is the opposite of Bitcoin. As the system gets more valuable, you tend to have mass federation. And that's why we have less than 10 mining pools that control Bitcoin. Uh, The other dimension is that these pools are service providers. Okay, so as they exist, they offer more than just staking services. They offer layer two solutions. They offer cross-chain communication solutions. They can run all kinds of additional protocols on top of the Cardano protocol. So you're creating a marketplace of decentralized service providers for your system who are already kind of pre-vetted, pre-trusted. They already have a reputation metric within the system. So this allows you basically to kind of start replicating the Amazon web services and the rack spaces of the world and doing all kinds of things for decentralized infrastructure, which is really cool stuff. Now, you know, there's a lot of specific differences between how Tezos and Polkadot and EOS do things under the hood from how we generate random numbers and what type of VRF we use or if they use a different thing. And I mean, those are, you know, things domain experts argue over. The thing you have to care about is it is it performant? Is it stable? Is it going to be reliable long term? Are the economics sustainable, especially in the reward mechanics? 
And for example, with our reward mechanics, we started from the top. We went to Oxford and we worked with a prominent professor there named Elias Kasupas. And we wrote several papers trying to talk about non-myopic equilibria and all these other mechanism design terminology that's kind of a word salad. But the long and the short is we did a lot of mathematical modeling and then we tested that mathematical modeling first with an incentivized test net and now with our system. And what we've noticed is we have overwhelming participation and our network quality rate is above 99% right now. Almost everybody who's up to make a block makes a block. So as our system gets more and more decentralized, it is reliably doing things and reliably doing things that are 100 times more decentralized and I think 150 times faster than Bitcoin, which is a really incredible achievement given that our entire system can run with about 10 kilowatts of power and Bitcoin's about 1,600 times more energy inefficient. You know, you have to use like all the energy of Switzerland to run that system. I've got a personal question, Charles. You have the weight of all this stuff going on all the time in your head. I mean, we haven't even touched on Emergo or Polymath or any of these other amazing things that you're involved with. How do you relax and unwind at night? Are there any books or music that really help you kind of clear your head and get uh, – I mean, when you're thinking about the vision for the future, it's foggy. Like, what helps you really clear it? That's a great question, too. You know, you have to have work-life balance for it to be sustainable. It's not just the burdens of the job. It's the fact that our industry in particular is overwhelmingly toxic in certain respects. Uh, you know, I've never been in a business where your competitors don't just say, we disagree with you. We think our vision's better. They say you're a criminal. Uh, just recently, uh, Adam Back compared me to Charles Ponzi. I've met Adam back. I've, I've seen him probably three, four dozen times at different conferences. We've had conversations, always cordial. And then suddenly over Twitter, I'm Charles Ponzi because he disagrees with proof of stake. It's an extraordinary reality. And uh, it's, uh, it's uh, definitely emotionally draining from a certain respect. So you really do have to have a lot of mechanisms to rest and recharge. And my side, um, I use a lot of different techniques. One, I, I'm a big fan of flotation tanks. I haven't been able to do much of that lately because of coronavirus, but uh, they're great. Second, I meditate every day and uh, I bought a Muse. It's an electroencephalograph that uh, knows when your brain is calm and when your brain is active. And you can use it to kind of help train and guide you with meditation so you know you're in a proper meditative state because that's always difficult. I do a lot of breathing wow. exercises and, you know, these types of things. Recently, I started studying heart rate variability, and there's uh, a lot of great tools that you can use to do that. Second, you have to regulate your sleep schedule. So I have this beautiful thing right here. You kind of put it on. You can put it on over your glasses and so forth. And it actually turns on blue light on your eyes. So you can use this to regulate your melatonin cycles. In fact, I'll even show you guys what it looks like here. Because blue light is something that inhibits melatonin. Is that right? Like when you're looking at your yeah. phone, you... Yeah, let me take my glasses off so you can be a little easier for you guys to see. Yeah, so that's blue light going in my eyes right now. And actually what it happens is when you do this early in the morning between 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., what you do is you inhibit melatonin production for about 12 hours. So it resets your circadian rhythm. So you start getting tired around 7, 8 o'clock at night and you have maximal production around, around 10 11. So you have to do that, combine that with workout and these types of things that helps a lot. Uh, so there's a lot of biofeedback devices and, you know, just good old fashioned stress reduction techniques like mindfulness that you can use to really help things through. Uh, you know, the other thing is you have to make sure that 
you balance um, the actual time you spend working from the other activities. Like you need to make sure you invest in your friends and your family and these things. And I live on a farm. And so I have a lot of demands there like animals and other things. I got chickens and horses and mini goats and mini donkeys and I grow hay on the farm and so forth. And you kind of have to pay attention to these things because your crops die or your animals starve to death if you, if you don't pay attention to them. So it kind of forces that constant vigilance of context shifting where you have time to just focus on one thing and just do that thing and, you know, turn off the phone. So yeah, it's a combination of good diet, exercise, sleep hygiene, uh, balancing of tasks, making sure that when you context shift, you can deep focus on those things and it helps you with all that stuff. The other thing is you have to learn how to delegate and build good trust and communication with people. You worry when you think things aren't going to get done. If things can get done and you believe in the people who are going to do those things, you tend not to worry very much. So I have great people like Tamara Hassan, for example, my chief of staff. She's my right-hand woman. And every day uh, I'm sending her a message or you know, sending her an email or something. And I say, hey, I need these six things to get done. And then her job is to figure out how to delegate and get those things done and build teams and so forth. So I know when I give that task to her, I can just take it out of my brain and it's going to be at least tracked. Maybe it won't get done, but at least somebody's worrying about it for me. So I can come back on Monday and not have to worry too much. And so then, you know, I have a great CTO with Romain Pallarin, for example, and a lot of the technological things, I can have that conversation and a great chief scientist with Akalos and so forth. Uh, so good people also allow you to worry a lot less. As a final point, you know, social media is a very, very strange thing. You know, there's never been a time where we're more connected, but there's also never been a time where we're, where we're further apart. And it has enabled behavior that is, um, in many cases, very toxic and counterproductive. And uh, the problem with social media is it tends to define you by your worst moments instead of your best moments. And you get compressed down into a single tweet. So, for example, my MetaMask tweet is the thing that most people in the Ethereum space tend to resurrect from time to time. And uh, there's a litany of these other examples for many people. And, you know, no matter what you do, there's no redemption. You can never escape a single statement or activity or mistake or misspeaking or whatever. And so the way to transcend all of that is just simply to stop caring. <laughs> what you do is you just say, guys, uh, yeah. I does not care. I don't give a shit. And then all of a sudden they lose all the power because at the end of the day, it's not real life. Social media is not real life. It's, it, people yeah. tend to treat it that way. And unfortunately, the woke mobs and other people have been able to destroy people's lives but I'm in a position where I own my own company and I'm independently wealthy. So I really can just do whatever the hell I want. We have one a good of the, life. Yeah. One of the sayings that I think relates here that I've, I've held is that wolves don't concern themselves with opinions of the sheep. Yeah. That was the lion. The lion doesn't concern <laughs> the lion. Well, yeah. Wolf, wolves eat the sheep. Um, you know, that's exactly right. And, you know, most people don't have that privilege in a, in a certain respect, but you still can develop an attitude of focus on real people. And I have a rule that I don't get upset unless they say it to my face, because at least they had the courage to say it in my face. And I'll take them seriously at that point. If they're only going to say it over the web, then fuck them. It doesn't really matter. You know, you just don't care. So I think you have to have a healthy dosing of all of that. And unfortunately, it's very difficult, especially for people who are over the age of 40 or 50 who aren't natively used to social media and these channels to interface with them because they just get treated horrifically badly. 
and uh, and then it just emotionally eats away at them. You can see it's taken a very significant toll on guys like Jordan Peterson, for example, who's very level-headed, well thought out, well put together guy. Even 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 so, he's become a drug addict and he's had a a lot of problems in his life uh, as a consequence of the fame and notoriety that his station affords. And it, it easily eats away at people if they're not prepared for it and or enables your worst impulses. Uh, as we've seen with people like Trump, for example, where the guy's the leader of the world, but he's still tweeting at three o'clock in the morning, attacking people as if he was you know, having a one-on-one conversation. Whether you support him or you don't support him, that's really not conduct becoming of the office in that respect. So the, you have to avoid those temptations. And it's very difficult. I've succumbed to them many times. My media director and other people remind me of that on an almost weekly basis every now and then. Uh, but you also have to have the courage to stand up for things you believe in and, uh, you know, just have some fun along the way. I think one of the greatest community management tools has been my AMAs. If you go to my YouTube channel, you can see almost every week I'm having two hour, three hour conversations with my community. And it also helps you keep you grounded because it reminds you that these trolls aren't real people. The real people are the ones who show up and they ask, like, let me show you something really cool. This was a gift. So this right here is a piece of art that somebody, I never met the person, commissioned. And basically it's the Cardano logo, but it's very special. It has a thousand dots on it. So one of our milestones for Cardano was having a thousand stake pools. So some guy just said, hey, let's do the Cardano logo and have a piece of art made and have a thousand dots. And they're actually layered on top of each other. So there's like 10 dots in each of these. Let's have a thousand dots put on and let's just send it to Charles. I, it's just, so some guy just showed up in my office, the artist, he said, Hey, I got something for you. And I said, Whoa, that's so cool. I'll put it in my office, but it's a great reminder because each of these dots are actual people. There's 1200 stake pools that are registered and they all have their own businesses and their hopes and their dreams. And they came for their own beliefs. And those are the other things that kind of keep you grounded and level is that, you know, that you're not alone. You know, you, you're with an army, you're with people, you know, every day, there's people who show up and they fight for you and they believe in you. And um, that gives you a lot of strength on the, on the bad times when there's product delays or the markets collapse or, you know, these other things you say, all right, well, you know, tomorrow will be, will be better. Yeah. I think that's so cool. I think uh, art's actually one of the most thoughtful gifts that anyone could give. So I think that's really awesome. And as you mentioned, you've got people in 48 different countries 2020 has really cut off a lot of our contact and that we're used to doing, whether it's flying places or having in-person meetings. Can you share some of the tools that you're using online to keep in touch with your team and stay connected? I know there's a lot of founders and other business owners that are listening to this podcast right now that would love to improve their distributed work environment if they only knew how. Yeah. Yeah, so we use Slack and we use um, tools like Jira and these other things. I, I mean, you kind of have to have at least three different sets of tools if you want to be successful in a distributed company. So first you need some digital commons for communication where everybody's in one system and they all have the means and ability to talk to each other and you organize your communication and channels. So that can be systems like Mattermost or Slack. There are many competitors in that respect and they all have their pros and cons and they're all like Swiss army knives. You can plug in lots of capabilities to them. Second, you need to have some form of a task management system. So as you're communicating with people and you're having meetings with people, tasks come up 
and they need owners and accountability and timeframes on them. And that way you don't forget, because as you go from 10 to 100 people to 1,000 people, complexity goes up exponentially. Your brain is not so good at tracking all those things. And so you definitely need something. And there are great systems like Asana and Jira and others that can allow you to track and trace tasks. And you hire people whose day job is to be the custodians of those systems. So they enforce compliance with those systems. And then finally, you need project management systems. So there's a big difference between a task, a project, and a product, and know those differences. And uh, project management systems are essential whether it be base camp or something else, because they allow you to kind of encapsulate large chunks of work wherever they are in your organization to do that. Now, if you have these things, you can operate. But the engine that makes you operate well is culture. You have to have that done pat. And there's a great book uh, called Hit Refresh written by Sasha Nadella that talks about kind of his experiences of taking over Microsoft from the reigns of Balmer and Gates and how difficult it was to change the culture of that company to become an innovative company as opposed to a custodial company over a monopoly, which was um, where they were. And that's why they were in such decline, like IBM was back in the day. And so culture is the single most important driver of the engine. And culture enables productive communication and empathy. All the time, you have friction from work. And if you don't have the right culture and the right empathy, what happens is that people don't trust each other and they don't want to work with each other. They get passive aggressive. They don't reply to an email. And when you're in a centralized work environment, you can kind of force the issue. You can drag people who don't like each other into the same room. When you're in a decentralized environment, you can't because they're halfway across the world. You can't drag them into the same room. You, you can try to force them to communicate, but they're gonna do so like two magnets of the same polarity pushing away from each other, right? It just doesn't work. So you have to build a good culture in your organization. You have to build a common mission in your organization, and you have to understand where you're failing in communication, trust, and empathy. And almost always, all your efficiency problems, all your communication problems, there's some empathy, trust, culture, reason why these things aren't working. And it can be just as simple as maybe there's linguistic barriers to as complex as I don't like your religion to whatever the hell it is, but it's something. And uh, good culture, HR people and good leaders can identify these things and find remediations for these particular types of things. And you have to have an environment where you're willing to allow people make mistakes as well. Our biggest problems have always come when we've hired people from the Fortune 500 world. They come with phenomenal resumes, lots of experience and skills, and they walk in the job, they're very strong. And then what happens is the minute they have to make a hard decision that could potentially blow up in their face, you notice that suddenly they drag 12 people into a call and they wanna make the decision by committee. Why? Because in the corporate world, the metric of success is avoiding failure. In the entrepreneurial world, the metric of success is success, delivering the product, making the money, right? So these are incompatible cultures in that respect. And so it's a little bit of a difference when you drag someone out of the Fortune 500 where you get all these beautiful processes and systems and skill sets and good education and so forth. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, you also get that, um, that corporate syndrome that's in their veins. And so the, the single most valuable component there is teaching them that it's okay to fail. In some cases, I'll kind of force the matter. And when it blows up in their face, say, hey, it's not so bad. It's kind of like when you're learning to ride a bicycle, right? You're going to fall down, scrape your knee a few times, but you need to do that to be able to ride the bicycle. Uh, and I think that's probably the biggest mistake that um, startups make when they're transitioning from a peer startup to a real company. 
you know, it's not when you're small, everybody's an entrepreneur. No one in their right mind will join you. But when you get to that mid-level where you're 100, 200, 300 people and you're starting to go from startup to a real profitable business, you start getting these institutional people to help you manage that because you need those systems to be able to get to the next level. But those people come in thinking it's Dell or it's Amazon or it's you know some big company and it does not work. It's a final point. Effective meetings are the single uh, biggest drain on time if you don't do them right. Uh, there's a great video from Google Ventures. It's called Meetings That Don't Suck. I'd highly recommend that people watch it. It's a great, great video, but it brings up a broader point. So many people like having meetings that bring you 15 people into the meeting and having it be an update meeting and one person talks and everybody listens. So one person gets to talk, 14 people get to play on Facebook. They're never productive, ever. You need to have meetings where everybody walks into the meeting and they already know what the hell is going on and you're there for a specific agenda and goal and everybody who's in that meeting better talk. They better have an opinion. They better have a reason to be there or otherwise don't invite them. So we tend to like pre-chewing and we tend to like smaller meetings, super essential for a distributed company or else you'll end up with meeting itis. Your calendar will be filled with 12 meetings a week. You're wasting 15 hours in meetings. You only participate maybe in one of them. The rest of them, you're just zoned out. And then the context shifting actually means you've spent 30 hours instead of 15 hours because you have to take a little bit of time to retool and get back into the flow. So for a 40-hour work week, 10 hours are productive, 30 or not. What does that mean? It means that you now work a 70-hour week because you don't get those 30 hours back. And that leads to burnout for most people. So never do that. So I'd say effective meetings are the other component to it. So when you bring people in, give them an environment where they're free to fail, they get mentoring, they can grow Make sure your culture is very strong and that'll lubricate the engine and build empathy and trust. And then finally, don't waste people's time. Jeff Bezos, for example, forces people to read things when he has meetings. So he'll sit down and say, everybody, did you read the handout? They say, oh yeah, I read the handout. Great, we're going to read it again. And it has, hence people printouts and they spend the first 10, 20 minutes actually reading because he found that no one actually ever reads the printout or the, uh, the PowerPoint or these types of things. There's a great book uh, called The Everything Store, which talks about that. I love it. Those are some very applicable words of wisdom. And man, we could, I mean, I could talk to you for, for literally the rest of the day, but we got to be respectful of your time. So there's just a couple questions that we have left. And I don't want to ask you to walk us through the entire roadmap. Uh, you could tell us what the URL is to go there, but tell us just the number one thing that you're most excited about on the roadmap here for the next year or two years, the one thing well, that you think- I'll, I'll is give just... you the thing for the next three months in a website. So cardano.org yes. is kind of the entry point. We designed it to be a funnel, no matter if you are interested in writing applications or voting or running a stake pool or just understanding more about ADA, it should have enough to get you where you need to go. Uh, but briefly, the thing I'm most excited about in the next three months, six months, is the rollout of multi-assets and smart contracts. So we had to get decentralization done first, and that was real hard because we built a great engine, but it was a very complicated one and we had to get it to a point where everything was beautiful. And now we're gonna do the exact same thing and roll out uh, the best smart contract solution around. So we're super excited about Gogan, we're super excited about Plutus and Marlow and everything that's coming. And we're really excited to enter 2021 uh, being a, the best platform for people to build smart contracts and dApps on. All right, everybody, take care. We will see you next week with another great episode here of the Crypto 101 Podcast.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.